Hello everyone, welcome to this episode of Sabbath School From Home. My name's Cameron. G'day, I'm Ken. Interesting thing, Cameron. Yeah. We're sitting in the very same room. This is the first time that all members recording the podcast <laughs> are in the same room. Um, so th that's going to simplify some things from our point of view just a little bit. Um, the topic, though, is, is not exactly simple. The topic's a deliciously complicated topic. Uh, it is on God's uh, mission to the powerful. And there are four um, possibilities that we're asked to choose from. Well, we're perhaps asked to do them all. Nicodemus, Naaman, or are there only three? Uh, in any event, and... I think it's the rich young... And Nebuchadnezzar, ruler. and the rich young ruler, yeah. whose name, I think, given the um, uh, alliteration in the lesson, must have started with N. I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, there seems to be a correlation between starting with N and uh, being powerful. Uh, of them all, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful. So given we have limited time in the episode, I think we should jump in there. And the lesson points us to Daniel 4, where there's the fascinating experience of, of Nebuchadnezzar's ultimate conversion. And we before we before we leave that, I, I, I want to, I want to um, just rest there for a moment. Uh, we'll head back to where the actual mission occurred, uh, but this is the outcome of the mission. Um, I just think it's wonderful um, uh, that uh, it finishes uh, with Nebuchadnezzar saying, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. Um, and... Uh, uh, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Um, uh, I, one of the things that I really want to do hmm. uh, when I get to Heaven, whatever hmm. Heaven might be, however it might look, hmm. um, is have a chat to Nebuchadnezzar. Hmm. Um, I, I think uh, uh, how fascinating mm. to listen to the uh, thinking um, and the, the, the stories, um, the philosophy um, of mm. the most powerful man ever to have lived, yeah. um, who was not also God. Um, <laughs> he was, it's interesting that you talked about listening to his ideas. He conducted the PhD examinations himself. He was obviously very um, gifted in lots of areas. Mm. Mm. And um, and you compare him to his descendants who are sitting there drunk at parties while the enemy's storming the city, and you realise that in the space of a short number of generations, there is a degradation of the quality of the rulers of Babylon because Nebuchadnezzar is, is an efficient military commander. He is wise. He's insightful. He knows his own mind, but is very quick to change it when presented with contrary evidence contrary evidence mm. um he seems to be a genuine seeker for truth a slightly conceited one when he says look at this city i've built i bet he didn't put a single brick on a single other brick <laughs> i'm sure it was the city that all his slaves had built but that's okay and <clears throat> but what, there's no there's no there's, there's no difference to a builder today he says that's the house that i built but he didn't lay the bricks it was no. it was his subcontractor who did that. Yeah, but at least he paid the subcontractor. Uh, so. yeah. <laughs> uh, what I thought of was Chesterton's comment, which I've quoted before, but uh, just the observation he makes in the start of orthodoxy, 
um, and how much larger your world would be if you could become smaller in it. It's a great line, isn't it? And that seems to be Nebuchadnezzar's <laughs> experience. And when Chesterton says, supposing you're talking with someone who thought he was the incarnate God on earth, mm. um, he said, you know, you might say to him, well, maybe you are God, but it's a very small God. Mm. Wouldn't your life be so much better if you were free to look up as well as down? Mm. Mm. And mm. Um, that's the sense of liberation that you get out of the passage in Nebuchadnezzar. I thought we'd duck back to Daniel 1 because this particular story has always been told to me in a way that I, I don't find resonant with the pattern of the whole book. And it's where Daniel begins his his ministry, as it were, his mission. And um, it's got fascinating points. So I'm going to uh, look at Daniel 1. I'll pick up in the third verse. The king told Ashpenaz, head of the palace staff, to get some Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Young men who are healthy and handsome, intelligent and well-educated, good prospects for leadership positions in the government, perfect specimens, and indoctrinate them in the Babylonian language and the law of magic and fortune-telling. The king then ordered that they be served from the same menu as the royal table, the best food, the finest wine. After three years of training, they would be given position in the king's court. Four young men from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were among those selected. The head of the palace staff gave them Babylonian names. Daniel was named Belteshazzar, Hananiah was named Shadrach, Mishael was named Meshach, and Azariah was named Abednego. But Daniel determined that he would not defile himself by eating the king's food or drinking his wine, so he asked the head of palace staff to exempt him from the royal diet. The head of the palace staff, by God's grace, liked Daniel, but warned him, I'm afraid of what my master will do. He's the one who has signed this diet, and if he sees that you are not as healthy as the rest, he'll have my head. Daniel appealed to a steward who had been assigned by the head of the palace staff to be in charge of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Try us out for ten days on a simple diet of vegetables and water. Then compare us with the young men who eat from the royal menu. Make your decision on the basis of, of what you see. The steward, a steward agreed to it and fed them vegetables and water for ten days. And at the end of the ten days, they looked better and more robust than all the others who had been eating from the royal menu. So the steward continued to exempt them from the royal menu of food and drink and serve them only vegetables. And God gave these four young men knowledge and skill in both books and life. In addition, Daniel was gifted in understanding all sorts of visions and dreams. And at the end of the time set by the king for their training, the head of the royal staff brought them into Nebuchadnezzar. And when the king interviewed them, he found them far superior to all the other young men. None were a match for Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. A couple of directions we could go, Ken. Um, I don't think it's really worth spending much time on it, but this has been used story uh, in most settings that I've heard as a child growing up to defend uh, vegetarianism <laughs> and against the the pattern of the book that's a little bit odd because you know when Daniel uh, stands up and prays at an open window that's not rational that's not reasonable and the natural consequence of disobeying a king so blatantly is not health and being thrown to a lion is not the natural consequence of that is not to be delivered and to say to the, uh, that most powerful person on earth, ah, uh, our God can save us, he's bigger than you. He probably won't, he might not, but that's okay, we're still not going to obey you. That's not the speech that is going to elicit a kind response from a king. In point of fact, Nebuchadnezzar is gracious to them, far exceeding what he'd said. He gives them multiple chances. Yeah. And they turn the three worthies turn him down. Every story in the book of Daniel is of, of the people of God facing an impossible situation and taking an irrational stand and being delivered at the last minute against all expectations. 
So if that is the pattern of Daniel, then what this is saying is, um, who would expect to look healthy and robust after vegetables? But in a mere 10 days, God ensured that, that this is this was them making a stance. And the, the reason why I say that is in the Hebrew, my understanding is that the word used to describe them, it's a similar word used to describe the fat cows. Well, it's interesting you say that because I've just pulled out my Hebrew Bible, uh, the translation uh, by Robert Alter, um, uh, perhaps one of the most literal. Um, mm. And the, the passage says this, at the end of the 10 days, their appearance was seen to be better and plumper in flesh. Yes. And all the young men who had eaten the king's provisions. Like the fat cows. Yeah, like, well, perhaps like the fat, fat, <laughs> the fat cows. This is one of the frustrating things. Um, I'm a strict vegetarian. Yeah. I'm, I'm not purely plant-based. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm generally a lacto-ovo-vegetarian, but try to limit my dairy intake. Yeah. Um, I do like cheese, yeah, uh, which I is like not cheese. limiting the... <laughs> but the the terrible thing is, I, I, I mean, those of you who have not seen me, um, uh, I, my, according to my BMI, uh, with all of the inadequacies in that, I'm obese. And my, my mm-hmm. doctor says to me, yeah. um, uh, Ken, how can a vegetarian be so fat? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like the doctor, Ken. Um, uh, I'm actually quite fit, I might say as well. Um, yeah. But uh, in any event, I could. Uh, when I was 19, and I used to uh, do triathlons, and I actually used to do karate five times a week and play squash. I used to exercise for about 15 hours a week, um, uh, and I weighed 66 kilograms oh. uh, and had a body fat percentage of about nine percent. Yeah. Um, now I weigh, dare I say it. Eighty-nine kilograms. Yeah. Um, uh, so I've got twenty-something kilograms to lose yeah. um, uh, to get back to my nineteen-year-old weight. Uh, then again, uh, I'm getting distracted. It didn't, but it didn't happen in ten days, though. Ken. It did not happen in ten days, Cameron. It took decades. Yeah. Um, there is a suggestion here, and this is a culture, of course, where food's hard to come by, mm. and so being plump is basically a way of advertising wealth. Mm. In this culture, to be, you know, you know, the vision of Israel as they enter the promised land is that they will grow fat and kick in Deuteronomy. Um, you know, that's the vision. Israel grew fat and kicked under the, the, the. So there is a suggestion. I think the the sort of moral significance of what's happening here is that Daniel is taking a moral stance. Uh, uh, he's exerting some sort of spiritual discipline and placing clear boundaries, and. God rewards him for this in a mere 10 days mm. by looking like he's in the bloom of health. And there is a suggestion of his... I don't think it's it, the purpose of the story is to give us dietary advice. I think the purpose of the story is to encourage us to trust God like this, every story in Daniel is. Um, having said that, I love legumes. So I'm not going to say anything against beans. Um, it's interesting that what Daniel objects to and what he does not object to particularly in this context of of having a mission um, to the powerful. He, Daniel is very selective. What can does he not object to? Uh, I'm going back to the start of the story somewhere. Um, he was to teach him the language and the literature of the Babylonians. That's the uh, 
Uh, so he doesn't object to being taught the language of the Babylonians. He doesn't. And the literature of the Babylonians the would have been the literature of their gods and their history and their general outlook on life. Um, he doesn't object to being taught the law of magic and fortune telling. Yes, interesting. Uh, it says uh, uh, this. This one says to teach them book learning and the language of the Chaldeans. So yeah, okay. Well, where's the magic bit? Uh, I am looking... I don't know what translation I'm in. I'm in the message, so it may be paraphrased. Okay. Uh, But um, we know the Babylonians were into fortune-telling and astrology. You can tell that from the rest of the story with Nebuchadnezzar's dream and... The three wise men who follow a star can. Ah, yes. That's very questionable. You know, um, if you you said in a church that you were taking up astrology um, on the recommendation of the, the three wise men, that could... (laughs) <laughs> well, well, but but indeed, it's clear also from the um, uh, from uh, chapter two and verse eight in the dream. It's the astrologers who answer the king. There's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however yeah. great might, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter yeah. or astrologer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so that's one of the things uh, yeah. he doesn't object to being part of the. Uh, uh, being well informed about the culture in which he's serving. Yeah, he's not just being informed about it, he's aiding it. And he, participating in it. it, it when, when he serves, he's, this is not some undercover vigilante saboteur. Mm. This is someone who works well and honestly mm. and diligently over many decades. Indeed, that's very clear. This is one of the things that... Um, it is worth aspiring to, and I think I might have mentioned it on the podcast before, but it's in Daniel chapter 6. Um, uh, everybody was... Uh, uh, this is under King Darius now. Um, uh, he, points every, he points 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators um, over them, one of whom was Daniel. Uh, so Daniel's one of the top three um, mm. uh, who's governing he's a member of cabinet yep. um indeed he's a, either the pro, the prime minister um the treasurer yeah um or the foreign minister uh he's one of those three um uh and um the, 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 everybody else is annoyed at his power yeah um but they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Now, there are many, many, many very competent and corrupt people. Yeah. There are very, very many very honest yeah. and incompetent people. Yeah. Um, uh, combine competence yeah. and integrity, yeah. and you have there... A wonderful, yeah, that's a challenge. Instrument of mission to the powerful. Yes, uh, it's Ken. What you've described is exactly why we ought not be educating people on mass. And the medieval church had very good reasons for not educating people, because educating people is very dangerous, and it's it's not intrinsically morally beneficial to be educated. And every school, as well as having an honour board of of alumni who've gone on to achieve illustrious things for the benefit of mankind or also have an honour board of all the people who've committed tax fraud and been jailed and all the people who have, you know... Because we contributed to this to society. Because we we taught them how to do things. And I 
<laughs> I often tell students when I'm teaching them that I'm worried about the next topic because it's very dangerous and I'm not sure if they can be trusted with it. Um, <laughs> and they usually look at me with blank disbelief. Um, but, uh, you know, Daniel himself was very powerful. Education itself gives power, yeah. but it's not, it's not intrinsically good. Mm. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, to look at this uh, in Daniel 1 and verse 17. It says, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Mm. Um, I, I want to pick up on this because uh, one of the temptations is to say, well, uh, there was some... Uh, uh, magical impartation of knowledge that God gave in a supernatural way that yeah. it was uh, that, that that involved no human activity that it was uh, essentially you know a, 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 um, a canonical inspiration yeah. um, that 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 was delivered to him but uh, that's actually not how the story comes about yeah. uh, he participates in the education system. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's through that participation yeah. uh, that God gives knowledge and understanding. And and so often I think what we do is we um, uh, tend to make the actions of people and the actions of God mutually exclusive, that it's a binary thing. Yeah. Uh, it's simply not the case. Yeah. Um, this is God working, uh, Daniel working, yeah. the educators working. Luke made a comment on this line last week, Ken. Uh, the, the lesson last week, uh, our listeners may remember, made a sentence in closing to the effect that um, it's important to be friends with people so that we may lead them to God. Uh. And what what that is doing is placing a distinction between the human experience of being mm. friends here on earth mm. and the divine experience. And they are obviously, Luke pointed out, that it implies they are separate things. Mm. Um, and we pursue the first so that we can achieve the second. Mm. But but there may just be more overlap between divine activity and human activity than that. Mm. There might be. Mm. Mm. Um, one of the things that's curious, again, that the Daniel does not object to, but the author of the story does, is his name, Belteshazzar. The other three friends are referred to by their, by their new names in the rest of the story. Or at least um, that's, my under that's how it's told. Yeah, Shadrach. Oh, oh well... Uh... What about uh, the fiery furnace? Where's the fiery furnace? That's in four, is it, or three? Yes. Uh, yes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they're referred to by their Babylonian, not their Jewish names, but Daniel is not referred to by the narrative writer as Belteshazzar. Mm. Mm. He's always Daniel. One of the reasons might be is that the narrative records later on in the book that Belteshazzar was named after one of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. Maybe that's why the narrative writer doesn't choose. It's interesting that Daniel doesn't object. I guess he had no choice. Mm. Is there some level of sort of pragmatism here? Mm. Oh, it occurs to me, if that be the case, that uh, that might well be one of the reasons why um, the other rulers were somewhat jealous of him. Uh, if he'd been named after one of the gods. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe they were too, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, uh, what sort of then mission... Is that, 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 you know, for instance, one of my friends quoted this story and he, he lives in a community where there was a fair bit of angst in the local community about the COVID vaccines. And I'll, I'll be honest and upfront um, because I know not everyone shares the same views, but I think um, that uh, vaccination for the protection of our neighbour, even and especially if it assumes some personal risk, 
is a Christian duty. I, I just feel that I just feel that the risk to my person is not enough to offset the benefit to society as a whole. Mm. In fact, that benefit, because I'm a mathematician, I know that the vaccine doesn't need to have 100% efficacy for it to have a phenomenal effect. There's the way these things develop is subtle. And anyway, I'm off topic. And our listeners, if they choose to disagree with me on that, are welcome to. Um, but um, my friend lived in a community where there was some angst among the Adventist um, peoples there. And it, the example he used was the story of Daniel. Daniel is very careful about what he takes a stand on. There's all sorts of things in this story that subject himself to personal risk. And he, he does not, in fact, act in a way to protect his person in the story. Mm. Um, he acts in a way as so as to protect his God or, or so as to reverence his God. Yes, I'm not sure. I'm interested that you use the phrase "protect his God" um, because I'm not sure that that's what it's about. I think God's perfectly able to protect Himself, but it's to protect His worship mm. um, of God. Um, he will not refuse to worship God. Yeah. Um, the Most High. And that may be the issue with the food. The food was almost certainly offered to idols. Mm. Mm. Um, so, which which makes uh, Paul's yeah. references to that somewhat interesting. Uh, it really doesn't matter if it's offered to idols no. unless it matters to you. But it did matter to Daniel. And it did. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how, how if we were to take lessons, um, all of us have power over other people um, in ways, and um, it's easier to talk about the powerful as, a, as another, as another other, other group. Um, but we all have the power to help or harm those around us. Um, and they are themselves powerful. We're walking, you know, it's like, isn't there a passage in Psalms where God says, you are gods? You know, we, we're all there with the capacity to change the course of the universe. Mm, mm. Um, what do we learn then from the life and story of Daniel about what a mission to powerful people looks like? I think... Um... Uh, there are a number of things that we've touched on in the story. I think uh, competence, uh, integrity, um, uh, learning to live uh, within the society uh, where we live, um, uh, answering the call to serve, um, uh, um, answering the call to education, um, doing it all um, with a vision for God's sovereignty. Um, maybe the, maybe the, we're looking at it the wrong way. Maybe we are saying um, God called Daniel to help powerful people. But maybe the best way to say is, to say it is that Daniel just chose in whichever circumstance he lived to interpret those circumstances as God's calling. Now he was. There were many people who were not called and given the education and all the rest. Um, was God less using them or able to use them? I, you would think not. Um, but Daniel just chose in every circumstance. The king makes a rule about not praying to any other god, or you know what. In all the circumstances that he faces, he says, "Ah, this is a calling. Right now, this is a calling where I am." To, I think there's real um, merit in an approach like that can one of the things that i think 
we tend to place too much focus on is that uh, there is this predefined um, path uh, that God has um, and if you miss it um, uh, like the tide in the affairs of men which if you mm. uh, uh, if, if you miss it that's it mm. um, you, it's all over your life's a failure mm. um, uh, you did you weren't in the center of God's will mm. um, you, you made a wrong choice and slipped off the path yeah um, uh, I I I'm not so sure it's that rigid. Um, uh, I, I, th I like the approach that God's call on you uh, is uh, not so much your career, um, uh, a particular um, uh, partner, um, uh, a particular degree, um, uh, those sorts of things. Uh, God's call on you is a call to him, uh, to worship him, to relationship with him, um, and to participate hmm. uh, in the affairs of the world um, to wh wherever you are and to the extent hmm. that you're able to um, uh, with him. Yeah. And Daniel didn't feel it was his call to take sides. Hmm. He... He was he was the conscience of his society by example, not by preaching. Mm. Mm. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, I think we should leave it there. We vowed and declared we're going to do a short episode. There's so many directions this could go, and obviously the lesson does into really interesting places with with Naaman, and there's of course the servant girl who who assumes her capture and enslavement to the person who's brutalized and probably murdered her family. You know, is God's calling, and there's you know this theme seems to be repeated. Um, yes, so our, our prayer is that it, you know, as it were, against all the odds, and the odds in my case seem to be in me, uh, not the the objections seem to be in me, not outside, and um, that that we might find ourselves at the centre of God's will. Uh, if you uh, want to share this podcast, please do. Uh, we'd love you to tune in again next week. We hope it's helpful. If you want to contact us, you're welcome to at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And thank you so much for spending this time with us.